1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. We're continuing in the series that we began a few months ago, picking it back up. I think it's been about a month since we've been here in 1 Corinthians, so we're going back through it. We're, uh, again, Paul, the Apostle Paul wrote this to a church that he began. If you want to read more about the beginnings of this church, Acts 18 is the place. In Acts 18, we see Paul spent a year and a half here. And now he's writing this letter back to them. This is actually the second letter. He wrote a letter between this and when he left. This is maybe five, six years after he ministered there. And today's text helps define in large part what it means to be a maturing Christian. What does it mean to be godly? How can I know if I'm growing in maturity spiritually? One of the things about the Corinthian church is they had a much higher estimation of their spiritual maturity than it actually was. They believed themselves to have attained lofty spirit Christ, when in reality they were still, as we see, infantile in Christ. And they considered themselves to be presidential, but they still needed to nurse. Let me read these, we'll pray, and then we'll review the letter. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people or as spiritual men, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd bless the reading of your most holy word and the preaching of it. Give us ears to hear. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So a quick uh, uh, recap of this letter, just to get you back in the thinking of 1 Corinthians. I said the Apostle Paul is the author. If you want to read the Apostle Paul's conversion, Acts 9, very interesting. Again, he practiced, or I mean, he established, he planted this church and pastored it for about 18 months. This letter, as I said, is five, six years later, and this letter is not a happy one. If you want to read a happy letter, try Philippians. This one is mostly discipline. Uh, Though Paul planted and, and was at this church longer than any other church he was at, this was far and away, maybe in competition with Galatia, uh, his most difficult church. They remained immature as quickly. The main sin that we've seen right away in this letter, our letter is, is quarreling and rivalries and division. In chapter 1, he begins, uh, it was reported to me in verse 11 by Chloe's people, so he must have had uh, some, uh, Chloe, we don't know who she is, but some people who were of her household maybe came to Paul where he was and reported that there was quarreling among them and they were dividing. So that was what we'll see throughout this letter. Lots of division, lots of fighting, lots of petty jealousies and rivalries and so on. So these folks are Paul's children. And like any parent, Paul is grieved and angry because uh, from the beginning his children were fighting and quarreling. There's nothing a parent hates worse than seeing his own children fighting. That's what they're doing. They're splitting up into factions. And now... Five years later, they are right where Paul left him, unfortunately. So our text is in the midst of this opening section. 
in which Paul is rebuking them for this division. But this section isn't only a rebuke of their divisions, it's also a defense of his ministry. Uh, Paul earlier wrote in chapter 2 that he came not with lofty, eloquent speech, but just simple proclamation of the gospel. And they, for uh, the Corinthian church, was maligning Paul for his simplicity. He's just a simpleton. He's just a country bumpkin. Uh, Since that time, itinerant preachers maybe had come to Corinth with high, great-sounding eloquence. And so they're looking at Paul and saying, what a pathetic, weak little guy he is in comparison to these great, eloquent speakers. So they're uh, challenging Paul's authority, his authenticity. Paul speaks plain things. Paul says... Uh, that he did that intentionally. He did that intentionally because he didn't want, as we see at the end, uh, in chapter 2, 4, and 5, he didn't want their faith to rest on, uh, on man, but on the power of God. He says, in, beginning in chapters 2, 6 to 16, that he did so um, because they weren't ready for it. Right? In, in, in 2, 6 to 16, Paul says, yeah, but we do get deeper things among those who are more mature. Deeper things. And already he's sounding the alert, right? I do speak of deeper things. I do go deeper into these things that I taught you, but with the mature. And what is he saying? <laughs> You're not mature. <laughs> and then he says it. Paul isn't often subtle, and so he gets right into it in chapter 3. Right? In the beginning, in verse 2, chapter 3, 2, I fed you with milk, for you weren't ready for it. That's normal. When they first came to Christ, when the church was first established, no nursing infant is ready for steak. It's fine. But, he says in the second half of verse 2, and even now, many years later, you're still not ready. And so Paul is defending his own ministry. Why did he preach and teach the way he did? And he's rebuking them for their immaturity. And so we see in here, a helpful de- uh, definition, a biblical definition of what it means to be a mature Christian. So, first of all, though, as we get into this, what is a spiritual person? What is a mature Christian? Uh, first, we have to see that Paul isn't questioning the genuineness of their faith at all. Right at the beginning of this letter, as he begins this critique of them in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, I appeal to you, brothers. Now again in three one, And that term of brother... Right? He's speaking them to them as fellow Christians. And that term of brother, uh, brotherly affection is, is an equalizing term, isn't it? Paul's just their brother. He's not their father. He's not their Lord. He's just one like them. But he's calling them brothers. They're in Christ. And then he even says that they are infants in Christ. They're in Christ. With all of their petty rivalries and divisions and dissensions and uh, rebellion against him, He still calls them in Christ. That's astounding. So, brothers and sisters, we have to be careful in the church, especially those who are immature and even maybe perpetually immature, who later on in their Christian walk, 5, 10, 15 years later, who they should be teaching, but yet they still need to be taught. They should be leading, and yet they still need to be led. They're still infantile years later. They're still in Christ and ought to be treated like that. They're still brothers in the Lord. 
So Paul isn't calling into question the authenticity of their faith. He calls them believers. He calls them in Christ. So Paul isn't saying that they're not born again. He's just saying that they're still immature. One of the reasons I wanted to preach through this letter is because this letter is such a contrast to our current age. Paul calls them infants. And we would look at something like that if a pastor or an elder or a fellow brother came to another Christian who's been a Christian for 10 years and is still very immature and called them an infant. We would think that that person is doing something wrong. They need to be nicer. They need to be kinder. Don't they have any grace? And we here then get a real, helpful, biblical definition of ministry and love. Paul is being loving here. This is gracious. This is kind. Because there's nothing more kind than to tell somebody the truth. What we do in the church right now is we separate love from truth. If you're being truthful, you're not being loving. And loving is to not tell the truth. And Paul weds those two happy compatriots very nicely. He is loving. This is loving. And so Paul says that they are still infants in Christ. They are still infantile in their faith. Now Paul says that he could not address them as spiritual people. The word people is not there in the Greek. It says, I cannot address you as spiritual men. It's in the masculine. What does he mean there? Well, we see that he doesn't mean that they're with, he, he does not mean that they're without the Spirit. They're, they have God's Spirit. He's not saying that they're not believers. He's not saying that they're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In the Bible, when you become a Christian, when God by His Spirit comes and takes out your internal hard heart, your resistance, your apathy to Him, and implants in you a new spiritual life, a love for Him, a desire for Him, an acceptance of His Word, the Spirit of God indwells that person, indwells you. When you repent and believe the Gospel, God's Spirit takes up residence in you. You are indwelt, the Bible calls it, the Holy Spirit. He's not questioning that here. When he says he can address them as spiritual, he doesn't mean that he can't address them as those with the Spirit. He means. He contrasts it with the spiritual as people of the flesh. Verse 3 says they're still of the flesh. He contrasts being mature with an infant in Christ. So there's this contrast of spirit and flesh. He says later that they are just merely human. Again, Paul's statement that he couldn't address them as spiritual isn't an indictment that they're not Christian. It isn't an indictment that they're not genuinely in Christ. It's just that for the most part, they haven't grown up. They continue on in merely fallen, sinful, in Adam ways. They're immature. Now, one of the striking things here is the Corinthian church is praised by Paul for their knowledge. They know the Bible. These folks could teach Awana. They could teach a Sunday school class. They know Scripture. So part of Paul's definition of spiritual maturity isn't what you know. I've been in churches where the people who are thought to be the most spiritually mature are the people with the most biblical knowledge. 
They, they, cannot, they, they can not only uh, give you the right order of the books of the 66 Bibles in order, they can give you the order of the kings. And because of all of their great biblical knowledge, they're thought to be the spiritual mature elite. That's not part of Paul's definition here. He, had, he said that they're immature, not because they lack knowledge, but because they lack love for each other. Because they treat each other so poorly. Right? They're dividing. They have jealousy and strife. They place the personalities of preachers before their commitment and love for Jesus Christ. So, what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to be mature? There's three things going on here. They're still remaining to act as they were before the Lord. Two, they're treating each other in merely fallen human ways and not in Christ-like ways. And three, even though a bunch of time has passed, they have not progressed in their repentance. Those are the three things of spiritual maturity here. One, they're continuing to act like they were before they were in Christ. Two, and what that means is they're not treating each other in the biblical definition of love. They aren't obeying God's commands. Three, and that is true even though a bunch of time has passed. So let me give you a definition drawn out of this of spiritual maturity. There's more that the Bible says about this. We're just sticking here. Here's a definition of spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is growth over time, ceasing to walk according to our flesh and walking according to God's Word. Pretty simple. Spiritual maturity is growth over time and ceasing to walk according to our fallen fleshly ways and walking in according to God's Word. One of the things we have to get straight about this definition is this issue of time. Look at verse 2 again. The first sentence, I fed you the milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready. He's referring here to his first visit to Corinth. This is five, six years before this. At that point, they weren't yet ready. Paul wasn't hiding biblical truth from them. He just wasn't going down into some depth in it. He just gave it to them simply. Why? Because they weren't ready. That makes sense, doesn't it? Again, if you relate this to parenting, when your child is first born... He's not yet ready for the stewed carrots. She's not yet ready for meat. So you nurse. You give it to him simply. But if you're still feeding your 10-year-old what you did when they were 10 months old, there's a problem. In seminary, (laughs) we were part of a church and there was a boy. Mandy, how old was that kid? Yeah, five, five-ish. Yeah, maybe six. And we had been there for a while. And one day he came running down the aisle to his mom and he said, and jumped on her lap and started nursing. <laughs> right? It's a little strange. Uh, and th- this is what Paul's rebuking them for. They haven't progressed. They still need a nurse. They're still infants. Even though a bunch of time has passed. 
And so spiritual maturity is a, is a thing about time. Now, this is really important. This places the right kind of pressure on us. Let me relate this to the issue of assurance of salvation. As a pastor, one thing I see consistently with believers is that they struggle to believe whether or not Christ has truly saved them. You've heard me say it, and I'll say it again. I said this morning in our membership class, the Bible is not answering the question, can I lose my salvation? I. It's not yours. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah 2.9. It's the Lord's salvation. The question the Bible is asking is, will Christ lose a Christian? Will God the Father lose a child? And the answer is everywhere, no. And yet we as believers sometimes struggle to believe that God does hold us in the palm of his hands and nothing can pluck us out. We do struggle to believe that nothing can, that we, that we think something in heaven and earth can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We, it's hard to believe that. We wrestle with that. And we often wrestle with that when we're evaluating our spiritual maturity. We look at our lives and we see ourselves struggling with the same sin now as we did a, 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 a six months ago, six weeks ago, six days ago. And we look at that. We look at the teaching in the Bible of the new birth and needing to grow out of our sin and repent of it. And we go, am I even a Christian? You ever, you ever done that? I, you've probably done that in the last week. Am I even a Christian? I keep doing this same thing. I keep thinking these same things. I keep saying these same things. Like, I haven't changed. Now, there are times in our lives where God gives us victory over sin in a very short, dramatic period of time. Right? We have stories of people who are just neck deep in drunkenness over decades, lost jobs and family, and God remarkably came into their lives and totally transformed it, and from that day they didn't struggle again. We've had these stories, but typically the way it works with us is lots of time. We get victory over sin in little fits and starts. It's a war where sometimes you have a victory one day and a regression the next, and a couple of victories, two days, and a regression. And it's this up and down, pulling apart. But over time, it's just a slow trajectory upwards, and you're growing out of sin. You're doing the things to repent. You hate your sin. You're confessing to a brother or sister. You're getting God's Word in your heart, and you're cutting off your hand, and you're plucking out your eye, and you're fighting. You hate your sin, but you're fighting. And then... As one of my brothers in Christ says, every five years I want to look back at my life and say, what a schmuck I was. So we measure spiritual growth in years, not in weeks, not in months. We measure it in decades. And there should be some. And if you haven't in five or ten years grown out of some sin and into holiness, Paul is here calling you still immature and maybe just in that area. You've been a believer for 20 years and you haven't grown up from what you were 20 years ago. It's one of two choices. Either you're just still an infant in Christ or you're really not in Christ. And Paul here is saying, you're just an infant yet. You need to grow up. Now we have to be careful here 
Good parenting, if you're a good parent, you demand immediate obedience from your children. The saying we've learned from others is right away, all the way, happy heart. If we say clean your room, you do it right now, you do it all the way, and you do it gladly. We expect immediate obedience. Why do we expect that? Because God is a father. He does not delight in delayed obedience. If we as earthly moms and dads expect immediate obedience from our children, how much more our Heavenly Father is infinitely greater than us? So as as we talk about this growth over time, we can't use time as an excuse to continue to sin either. There's a ditch on either side. The ditch on the one side is you're too impatient. You think you should conquer sin in a day. You think that your 10-year struggle should be over right now. Right? That's a ditch. That's wrong. That's not true often. But there's also a ditch on the other side that 10 years later you're going, I still need some more time. I, I still excuse my ongoing perpetual sin because I just need more time. Neither of those is true. So we should feel this godly pressure to grow over time or a long And this is true whether you've been in the Lord a short time or a long time, whether you've been in the Lord a year or years. We need to take the principle of verse 2 and apply it to our lives. Where we are now We need a certain thing, but we shouldn't need that thing five, ten years down the road. What we are wrestling with as far as sin now, in five years, it should be different. We should have realized growth there. So why don't we grow? Why don't you grow? Why a decade later haven't you realized the growth out of sin or sins into actual faithful obedience. Now, again, we are not here talking about sinless perfection. That will not be attained in this age, no matter what Methodists say. Right? There are Methodists who, think, who would taught, teach sinless perfection. It's not true. You, you'll get that when Christ returns and you will sin no more. Praise the Lord. Who wants to live forever in this age? Don't you hate sin? Isn't it awful what it does? So why aren't you growing over time? What's going on? The Bible says in Romans uh, chapter 12 that we need to be changed by the renewal of our mind. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It seems here that these folks, their pattern of thinking was still just human and fallen. They haven't yet progressed to the point of letting God's Word be God's Word. They still think that what they think and feel trumps what God has actually said. They're not thinking as God thinks. They don't see sin as sin. They don't see the way they're treating each other according to what the Bible says it is. And so they're just evaluating it on their own terms. They haven't yet come to hate their sin. They haven't come yet to despise it, be disgusted by it in the way that the Bible shows it to be. 
There are several things the Bible gives us to do to grow. One is faithfully attending Sunday morning. This is vital. Do not forsake the gathering together as some in the habit of. Right? And the context around that in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, is that some are being hardened by sin. And the solution, the major solution God has given to the ongoing uh, warfare with sin is gather together with brothers and sisters who love you enough to say something to you, to come under God's preaching, to gather. That's one. Two, uh, repentance. What is, re- what is biblical repentance? It does contain confession. That is, you name your sin for what it is, and you confess it to God, and if it's against somebody else, you confess it to that person. That's, that's a step in repentance. Too often we equate confession with repentance as if we're done. Sometimes confession requires you to go and make it right. right? So confession is a part of it. If we confess our sins to the Lord, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's a part of it. But repentance includes ceasing. It includes doing the things necessary to stop and to grow in obedience. And one of the things we see from the Lord Jesus Christ is, if your hand continues to cause it sin, what do you do with it? You cut it off. If your right eye continues to cause you to sin, what do you do? You pluck it out. <clears throat> now, it, don't do that. But do that, right? Jesus isn't saying cut off a hand, you still have another one. He didn't say pluck out one eye, you still have another one. What is he saying? You should go to great lengths. You should take drastic measure against your sin. This is the reason people continue on in sin. They're half-hearted. What they want to do is have the appearance of repentance and yet still be able to enjoy the pleasures of the flesh. They want to have their cake and eat it too. This is the issue. The reason Christians often remain perpetually immature and continue to wrestle with things five, ten years later is because they really still want to do those things and still want to be seen as a Christian. This is true. Have you actually gone to a brother or sister in the Lord that you know will be tough on you and confessed your sin? Right, Husband, have you taken your perpetual immaturity before your wife, your unwillingness to lead her, you're abdicating of your responsibility. Have you taken that to another brother that you know will be tough on you? Right. Those of you who look at porn this week, there's lots of you here who did it. Right. And you didn't do it for a few weeks and you felt good about yourself and now you do it again and here you're absolutely guilty and worthless. And, and this has been the pattern of your life the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Right. You look at porn... You confess it, you feel awful, you plan to take drastic measures that you don't take because you start feeling better about yourself and then two weeks you're right back where you're at. What? Do you really want to get rid of it or not? Have you just been lying to yourself the past decade? You have. Of course you have. You have made all kinds of accommodations to your flesh. You've made all kinds of plans that you haven't fulfilled because you didn't really want to fulfill them. 
All of your plans were just works righteousness. You were just planning to do things to alleviate your guilt. You didn't look to Christ mainly to alleviate your guilt. You just looked to yourself. You made plans to fulfill plans to make yourself feel better so you could go right back to the slop. And that that, that applies to a lot more than porn, doesn't it? Confess your sins to one another. Bible says in James 5 to go to the elders with it. If you want to kill your porn, come to an elder meeting and tell us about it. You should be ashamed. It is a shameful sin, isn't it? Isn't sin shameful? Paul is trying to help them to feel the shame they should feel over their lack of maturity over this many years. That's a good shame. This is a good gift Paul is giving them. Why? Because sin is so destructive. It's destroying their church. It's causing unbelievers in their church to think that Christ is a joke. None of that was in the manuscript. All right. So let's go back to where I'm supposed to be. So the presenting issue of their immaturity is their treatment of each other. If you have your Bibles on 1 Corinthians 3, flip 10 chapters later, 1 Corinthians 13, which I'm sure all of you know very well. The love chapter, right? Love is patient. It's beautiful. It is wonderful. This is one of the most beautiful chapters in all the Bible. Love is patient, kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong way. Rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. In where chapter 13 is placed, I don't mean this silly, between 12 and 14, this is one section, chapters 12 to 14. Paul is picking back up this idea of spiritual maturity that he here mentioned in chapter 3. Chapter 12 begins, now concerning spiritual. The word spiritual gifts is not there. The word is the same word in chapter 3, verse 1. Spiritual. Paul is defining in three chapters what he mentioned in a couple verses here. He's unpacking his thought here that he began there. He's defining what a spiritually mature person is here in grand sum. And at the heart of his definition is love, Christian love, self-sacrificial love, setting aside your own desires to serve the needs of somebody else, love, laying down your life to give somebody else life, love. 1 Corinthians 13 is used as a mirror for the Corinthians to look in. It's a rebuke. (laughs) right love is patient love is kind love is not irritable love is not rude love doesn't boast and you are just the opposite you're not spiritual mature people at all because you don't love that's what paul's saying to them with this chapter they don't they don't fit the bill they're immature they're not spiritual minded mature people because they don't love Again, spiritual maturity isn't what they lack to know. It's what they lack to do in sacrificial service for each other. 
They see their brothers in need and they don't do a thing. Right? They see somebody else with greater gifts than them and they envy and they gossip. Right? They're supposed to be unified as one church, many members functioning together, and they divide into little petty rivalries and factions. They don't love each other. They won't lay down. And this is the heart, what's behind all that fails them. They don't accept Christ's love of them, and so they don't love each other like they should. So apply this to you. What are you doing to build this body? What part are you playing? We were at a conference as elders a few months ago now, I guess. And uh, that church is situated in um, Bloomington, Indiana. Indiana University has the top music school in the world. They're incredibly gifted. So their church has a steady stream of world-class, top 0.1% musicians. These college students who want to come and be a part of this church's music ministry. Uh, And when these young men and uh, women come in, who are far superior talent musically than anything they got, they don't put them on the piano right away. They put it, don't put them on lead guitar. They give them a pink tambourine and ask them to play that. <laughs> right? This world-renowned elite musician standing in the back with the pink tambourine. Right? Just hitting the tambourine. Right? This person could do better than anybody else on the stage, but they're just banging around on the pink tambourine. Right? They want to test them. They want to see if they have teachability and humility. They want to see if they're willing to serve or if they just want to be praised. How about you? You willing to bang a pink tambourine here? You willing to sweep some floors? You willing to hand out some bulletins? You willing to serve in the nursery? That's what we need, right? We need that kind of people here. We need the kind of people who don't lob critical grenades, but who get down on their hands and knees and serve. That's what builds the church. That's what we need. That's what it takes. When I, at my previous church, uh, and I, there was a guy there named Jim, Jim Bennett. Uh, he, uh, if you've heard of Alliance Laundry, they're one of the biggest commercial laundry manufacturers in the world. They're in Ripon. He was the president. This guy was of incredible knowledge and giftedness and leadership. Incredible. He was an elder in the church. When I got there, he was in his 70s and just at the beginnings of Alzheimer's. And he wasn't what he once was. I never really got to know Jim and his full Jim. But if we did anything, church work day like we're doing here May 19th, somebody was moving, Jim was always there. It didn't matter. Nobody knew Jim except that he was a servant. Even when he progressed in his Alzheimer's, he died about five years of me being in there of it. Like year three, when he was kind of gone, he didn't recognize me, barely recognized his wife anymore. If somebody was moving, Jim was still there. That's what we need. We need Jim Bennett's. The guy could barely carry anything, much less walk, and he's there helping people move into their houses. (laughs) 
right? He, he was the most spiritually mature man in that church, although one of the least physically and mentally able. He was the most spiritually mature man you ever meet. And we have to be careful here because love has become very soft in our day. Paul is using some very sharp, hard language here. You are still infants in Christ and so on. That's loving. Paul wants them to grow up. And as you know, if you want to help your children go out of the sin, you have to be, you have to be hard on them. You have to spank them. You have to remove privileges. You have to say hard things. That's loving. So I don't want to paint the picture of love as only doing nice things and saying nice things. Loving is doing hard things and saying very hard, sharp things. We need to be manly in the church. We'll see at the at the end of Corinthians. Act like men, Paul says to all the men and the women in the church. We have to be hard. We have to fight. That's loving too. So what are you going to do with this? Well, we're going to take communion. So what I want to do is just transition right into that because this goes right into that. If you turn your Bibles with 1 Corinthians 11, elders, come on up. We're really working hard at good transitions. I'm just kidding. All right, in 1 Corinthians 11... Paul takes this issue of immaturity and lack of love and applies it to the Lord's Supper. And in verse 17 of chapter 11, he says, In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together for the Lord's Supper, it is not for the better or for the worse. Here he is. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, that those who are genuine might be recognized. But here it is, verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with each meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. You might notice, every time we take the Lord's Supper, we ask you to all hold the bread and take it together. Then we ask you to all take the drink and take it together. That is, we don't do the first hour and then they eat, and then the second hour they eat. We all wait to eat together. You do this in your home, I hope, right? This is common courtesy. As the food is being served, the, the first person served doesn't go ahead and start eating until the last person is served. Everybody's sat down and we pray together. Why? Because it's rude. Otherwise, one person gets done and they go off and you're not eating together as a family. So even their faction spirit are felt in the Lord's Supper. That is, when the Lord's Supper is being served, the first couple rows would start eating and then the people in the back haven't even gotten yet and they're done and leaving. What does that say about the church? Doesn't that tell a lie about what we are? And so even in this, we want to consider Christian love. We who take it first, hold it till the last, have it. Kids, this is a great learning lesson for you, isn't it? You get this little drink causing you to remember that Christ's blood was shed for you and you got to hold it until the very last person in the very back row has theirs. What a great time of training that is. And parents, what a great opportunity for you to define what Christian love is. Right? Isn't that love? We wait. We wait. That's what we do. And so, if you're a believer here from another church, you're welcome to partake with us because we are one body. 
but we ask that you take the bread and you hold it until everybody has it and we'll take it together. Because we want to be one church in Christ. Same thing with the drink. If you are not yet a believer, if you don't believe that Christ is Lord who died and rose alone for your sins, then you are not free to partake with us. You shouldn't. The Lord says that it would be taking judgment upon yourself. We don't want that for you. Instead, we ask that you would consider your need for Christ. You, as you know, your sin is uh, awful before a holy God. Christ died to take your sin from you, rose again to dead to give you new life. We want that for you, and you have simply to confess Jesus is Lord. Accept Him. Come to Him, and then you can partake with us. All right. So let me pray in thanks, and then we'll take. Father, I give you thanks for your Son, in whom we have life, and thank you for your church, this one united church in Christ. I praise that we get to visibly now uh, show our union together in Christ, in our unity together, agreeing on these things with you. God, may we do it in gladness, gratefulness for your church, and in love. And so, God, may what we're going to do here spill out into tomorrow and the rest of the week that we might grow up into Christ, loving each other more like Christ has loved us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The charge is this. Uh, I think the simplest, most uh, practical way to respond to this is practice hospitality. Invite somebody to windmill for ice cream this afternoon. Get a couple people and a neighbor over for dinner in the next week. If anybody wants a volunteer, um, I'll go. Uh, Just kidding. Not really. Um, Just practice hospitality. I think that's the simplest way to respond to Christian maturity. Our uh, benediction comes from the end of 1 Corinthians. The grace of Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. My love be with you all who are in Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord.